Well, hey, everyone. Once again, welcome to Midtown Church. My name is Jake Box, and I have the uh, incredible privilege of being lead pastor here at this church. And I'm uh, really excited about this morning. Hey, come in and grab a seat. I think we're pretty full. So if you've got a seat available next to you that's empty, could you, could you scoot in a little bit? Leave some empty chairs at the, at the end of the rows. That would be helpful for us this morning. Thanks for helping us out there. Well, <laughs> what a fun morning this is, right? You having a good time? I kind of hate cutting short and all the, y'all getting to all talk to each other. But now, now you have to listen to me. So, okay. Listen up. But uh, no, this is such a fun morning. We're celebrating the fact that God is bringing together two churches to become one church to see the day that every man, woman, child in Austin gets to hear the gospel of someone who loves them. And I've been looking forward to this day for so long. It's just the, the fact that, that like God is uniting two groups of people that, that love him and have been loved by him that want to partner with him to love each other and love our city. And like, this is like what God is going to do in this next chapter of our church here. I mean, I just, I have no idea, but I am really excited to find out. This is a a whole lot of fun, but I do know that, uh, it's a little bit weird too, right? Because we don't really know each other yet. And you look around and you see a lot of unfamiliar faces and all of that stuff. And, and like, I completely get that. Uh, we are a family because of what Christ has done for us, but we got to cultivate that. We got to get to know each other. And so, and the other thing is, is that we don't really know each other's histories real well. Most of us don't really know all that God has done through Hill Country Bible Church Central. And most of y'all don't know all that God has done through Midtown Church. And so what I've done this morning is I've asked a couple of my friends, uh, Alex and Krista Miller, come on up and y'all can go ahead and come on up. Thanks guys. And, um, I, I just want to give you just a chance to get to hear from somebody from each of the churches that are coming together, to hear a little bit of the history of how God has used each of these churches to impact their lives personally. And again, the, the purpose of this is just a step into getting to know one another a little bit, but also to help us grow in our appreciation for how God has worked in the separate churches that he's now uniting today. And so I've asked Alex to go first, and I don't think either of these people were very excited when I called them and asked them to do that, do this, but I really appreciate y'all coming up here. Alex, tell us a little bit about yeah, this how is your absolutely life's been my comfort zone. impacted. So. Hi, everybody. I'm Alex. Uh, I started going to Hill Country UT when it was Hill Country UT in 08, and uh, I'm not a very social person, and yeah, it's kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> But yeah, at that church, I experienced a genuine community probably for the first time at a church. Um, I know a lot of people kind of have an image of the American church, and I definitely came to to Austin with that negative image, and um, that changed at Hill Country UT. Um, I got to also see a church that served the community genuinely, which is incredible. Um, I mean, just a few months back, we went and helped paint a person's house. Never did anything like that at the churches I was a part of back in Houston. Um, And I also met my wife who's really incredible. Her name is Claire. She's way more social than me, so it balances out. But yeah, I'm really excited about, uh, about the merger, and there's a lot of people here, my God. And uh, anyone who doesn't know me will get to learn all my puns very soon, so that's going to happen as well. So yeah. Jake kind of put me in a box up here. Hi, so my name is Krista Miller, like Jake said, um, and this is crazy. I do not envy you. <laughs> I only have to do it for three minutes, and you have the whole time, so. <laughs> um, so 
Uh, before I started going to Midtown, um, I had been exploring religion and Christianity for like 15 years. Um, and my first church experience was my freshman year in college. My roommate invited me to go to a campus ministry event with her at a church um, right off campus. Um, side note, um, I recently learned that that is right about the same time that Jake, uh, it was placed on Jake's heart by God to plant Midtown, which is where I eventually became a believer. I promised I wouldn't do this. <laughs> um, so uh, fast forward six years later, six years ago, I met Jennifer. Um, we were in the same Bible study together. God, I promised I would not do this, and people specifically prayed for me to not do this. <laughs> um, it actually makes it more meaningful. Okay, really. okay. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> um, we were in the same Bible study, got to be great friends. Um, and then fast forward to last summer, I had stopped going to church completely. I think we had the same feeling about church uh, that Alex mentioned um, and Jennifer invited me to start doing a small group study with um, some women, a Midtown Huddle, as it turns out, um, and start coming to Midtown Sunday services. Um, you guys, I have never experienced anything like I experienced at Midtown that first time I went. <laughs> until today. Right, until today, because this is like epic. <laughs> um, they just... It was unbelievable. They welcomed me in, not as a Christian, not as a non-Christian, um, just as an Austinite, someone that they were super happy. I mean, they were super happy to see me. And um, I just knew there was something different about these people. Um, by the way, they talked to each other. I could tell they were invested in each other outside of Sunday morning, which was something I had never experienced um, at a lot of churches that I had visited over the course of literally 15 years. Um, and so it just really changed my heart towards the church in general. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and then I came to faith. Long story short, um, if anyone wants to get together for coffee and we can talk about the details because I'm condensing this story immensely. Um, but I just had, I was, had a dark, dark time last summer. Um, and that's when I ended up coming to faith. And <laughs> this past July... My friend Jennifer baptized me in our friend's swimming pool. I just have one more point to make. <laughs> um, and I just firmly believe that it's because of that community of people speaking truth into my life during that dark time. Um, it wouldn't have happened any other way. And it's, it's all because of what God's doing through Midtown. And um, I'm so excited that it's like quadrupled in numbers and that it's going to happen for so many other people through, through us as the body. So I'm done. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, thank you all so much. Thank you all. And that's just awesome. Alex, Krista, thank you all for sharing with us this morning. We want you to get a chance to hear lots more stories like that. So you can turn around and you talk to each other next coming Sundays or you grab lunch with people. Like, man, do that. Hear their stories. Grow in our appreciation for how God has, has worked in these two separate churches. They're now becoming one. Because it, it's, it's kind of like, though it's definitely not exactly like, but it, it's kind of like today we're, we're celebrating a, a marriage. It's, it's like a wedding for, for the church. In the sense that you've got uh, two people 
two different groups of people, I should say, that have been like loving God and, and serving God, seeking to glorify God separately. But then they meet and they fall in love and they decide, that, hey, let, let's do this together and, and, and come together and be two becoming one. You get the sense like now we can do this to even a greater capacity, do what we have been doing separately, but let's join together and do it to a greater capacity. I thought about having Jamie come up and we were going to light a uni, uh, the unity candle together this morning. <laughs> I thought that was a little bit over the top. He wouldn't go for it really, but uh no, but it, this whole wedding metaphor has got me thinking about my, my uh, relationship with my wife, Krista. And uh, she uh, and I started dating actually 13 or started, we met 13 years ago this weekend uh, at, a, at a college ministry retreat right before the start of school. We went to Texas A&M. Don't hold that against me. And um, we, uh, we met at this place and uh, met at this retreat. And when I saw her, man, sparks flew. For me, they did. Uh, not so much for her. But, um, you know, here she was. She's gorgeous, still is completely gorgeous, and is, uh, was a, a ministry leader in the church. She was overseeing the discipleship team for our church, Grace Bible Church. I was overseeing the evangelism team. So I was like, clearly that's a sign, right? Evangelism, discipleship, like that needs to come together. So I was like, I got to meet this girl. I got to meet this girl. And so I, it, you know, I pursued her. She made me wait. But finally in November, I talk her into going on a date with me. And after just a couple of dates, uh, I'm falling for her fast. But, and I don't really remember why, but somewhere along the way, after a couple of dates, I just think, uh, I found myself thinking, man, I don't know if I've been, you know, romantic enough. I don't know if I'm pursuing her enough. I don't know if I'm clear enough how much I like her. And so I was afraid that I might have been like drifting towards the friend zone. And I didn't want that. And so I was like, I started talking with my roommates. I like, I got to come up with a plan. So they helped me come up with this incredible genius plan of, of buying her a flower. You know, it's just way out of the box. But um, so I go and I buy her a rose. And I knew that she was studying up on campus. And so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop off a rose on her windshield with a, with a, with a note. And, and like that, man, that's just, she's gonna love that. And so I got, I get the rose. I'm driving to campus to find her car. And on the way I'm driving there, it just starts downpouring, like torrential downpour. And I'm like, undeterred. This is going to be great. This can make the story even better. So then I go and I, I, I find her car on campus. I get out. I put the rose on the windshield. Like this is going to be a well-watered flower here. And I put the note on the windshield and then it dawns on me like, this note's going to get washed away or it's going to be ruined. They're not, she's not going to be able to read it. And I knew that there were a couple other guys that were after Krista. And I didn't want anyone else to be able to lay, lay claim to the rose. Or I didn't want her to even have a spot where she's thinking, I wonder who gave this to me. I wonder if it was Jake or I wonder if it was so-and-so. And I was like, I don't want that idea in her mind. So I was like, what am I going to do? I can't put the, I can't put the note on the, on the windshield. And I was like, I got it. I'll just go find her. I knew where she was studying on campus. It was a little ways away. And it's downpouring. But I like, I'll just walk over there and I'll just tell her it was me, which is a stupid idea. And so I like start walking over to, to the building and I'm thinking, yeah, this is a great idea. And I get into the building where she's studying. And then somewhere, I guess it was the way that everyone was looking at me because I literally looked like I had just jumped in a pool. Like I am just soaking wet every part of me. And everyone's like looking at me like, look at this dude. And I'm thinking, 
she's going to look at me that same way. Look at this dude. What is this? This is awkward. And plus, I didn't bring the rose with me. It's like I'm just going to like, what am I going to say? Hey, I just want you to know I left a rose on your car. <laughs> so like this is clicking in my mind as I turn the corner and I see Krista. But before she sees me, thankfully, and I just duck down and I duck behind this desk. And I just am sitting there behind this desk. And like people are looking at me and I'm like... Oh man, I'm talking to myself like, this is a dumb idea. Why have I did this? Why have I done this? This is dumb. What am I going to say to her? She's going to think I'm an idiot. Like I, I am an idiot. I really am an idiot. And so like I crawl out of there to where she can out of her eyesight. And then I walk back to my car. I get in my, I get in my car. I drive home. Later, I call her, which was a much better plan, and just kind of nonchalantly say, hey, I just want you to know I left something on your car windshield. I don't think I told her the full story until after we were engaged because... <laughs> I tell you that, though, because one, I don't want you to think that I'm cool. I know I look cool, but y'all, I'm not cool, right? So not smooth at all. <laughs> now, I tell you that because I knew that Krista, right from the start, I mean, I wanted to marry her. And one of the reasons why, and there were many reasons, but one of the reasons why is like she, she's, she just loves God. And I knew she was pursuing God. And at that time that I met her in August to November, I had just even been more confirmed about her love for God and her heart for ministry and all that stuff. And I just knew and we were gonna, we were gonna make a great team. We were gonna make a great team. We would be better together. And friends, I, I look at us today. You look around, look at yourself. You're a good-looking group. We're gonna make a great team. We're gonna make a great team. We're gonna be better together. But it may be awkward at first. There may be some times where you're going to need to go out of your way and show some initiative, and it might not go as smooth as you initially want it to go. Can I ask you something this morning? Can I ask you to persevere in that? Can I ask each one of you all to commit, to lean into these relationships, to lean into the bond that we have together in Christ, and to pursue each other? get each other's numbers, to set up times to grab coffee with each other, to hang out with each other outside a group, to, to form as a family. We already are a family because of what Christ has done for us, but let's live that out. Will you do that? Will you commit to do that, even if it's awkward at times? Think about what Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, right? In that passage, we're told that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Friends, God has brought us together. This is the start of an awesome chapter in the life of our church. And I think we're going to find that we will be better together. Let's lean into that. Friends, if you're new, if this is your first time here, you're just visiting or college student returning from, from being away for the summer, and you're like, what did I just walk into? Or your first time here as a college student, let me just say, we're so glad that you're here, and this is a great Sunday to be here because you're getting in on the ground floor. No one knows anyone. So if you're like, I don't know anyone here, it's like, yeah, no one, no, neither, no one knows everyone here. So you're like, just right at home. We want to invite you to join with us as well, to connect with us. We we. I believe God is doing something eternally significant here, bringing together these two churches, bringing together us, so that with him, we can see the day every man, woman, and child hears the gospel from someone who loves him, beginning here in Austin and moving on to the ends of the earth. So it's going to be cool. Y'all cool with that? Can y'all commit to that? Okay. Now, having said all of that, I don't want to get carried away. I don't want us to think that this is like, you know, the answer. 
that this is an exciting moment for sure, what God's done bringing us together. But, but what God is doing here, it's not in the merger where we could put place our hope. Like this is not the now by two becoming one. We're the best church there has ever been. <laughs> I'm not making that promise. So don't, don't think that I don't want to get carried away here. In the midst of this new chapter that God is writing, I want us to make sure that we keep our eyes on the fact that Jesus is our hope and Jesus is our joy, not the new relationships that we will form here or the old relationships that carry over or the ministry that's going to be done in and through the people here. Those are all really, really great things. But friends, the place we're going to find our hope and the place we're going to find our joy, the joy that we all long for, is in the person that we all gather here each Sunday to worship. Right? And sometimes, and I do this, I'm sure that I'm not the only one, where, where we, you know, you latch on to something new and you think, man, this is the greatest thing ever. And we kind of look to that to be a real source of joy for us. But that joy just never seems to last, does it? And friends, this church and what God's doing here, it's awesome and it's exciting. And there's joy certainly to be had. I think a lot of us feel that this morning. But let's not buy into the idea that joy is to be found here. It's to be found in the one we worship here, right? This whole marriage metaphor that uh, I was talking about got me thinking about a passage in John chapter 2, where Jesus is at a wedding feast, right, in, in Cana, and he turns the water into wine. And in fact, I want us to look at that passage together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 2. I've got it up on the slide as well. And like, let's just take a minute and look at this passage, and what we're going to see and what we'll be reminded of is the joy that's found in Jesus and what Jesus did to ensure that we could have his joy uh, in abundance. And so let me read this, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, so on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six uh, stoned water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, I did not know where it came from. The servants had drawn the water new. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. All right, this passage, one of my favorite passages in this in this passage, what, we're see, what we see is that there is a joy shortage and there is someone who's come to bring us the joy we all long for. The passage begins, right, with an a, a incredible disaster that the wedding feast has run out of wine. The wine being like the most important part of any, any giant feast, right? And so they, uh, it's a disaster. It's, it's shameful for the, the uh, couple that are getting married, the families that were throwing the feast. I mean, te- like basically 
The party is over. And they've run out of this wine. So Mary comes up to Jesus and says, hey, have you noticed? Like, they, they have no wine. Um, now, let me get uh, kind of deep, a little philosophical for you. But uh, we always run out of wine, right? At least at the Midtown parties, we always run No, I'm just kidding. No, we always, we, we always run out of wine. That uh, there's this old rabbinical statement that goes like this. Uh, uh, where there is no wine, there is no joy. I'm surprised I didn't hear an amen for that. The, uh, there, there's this connection, though, and you see kind of throughout Scripture, but there's this connection between wine and joy. And so when I say we always run out of wine, what I really mean is that man, we, we always run out of joy. It's like what I was saying earlier, that we grab onto something, we think it's going to bring us joy, but it, it, it doesn't last for long, that joy. And then it's, it's run out, and we're left look, still looking for the thing that we thought we had found, but you know, the thing that we thought was going to deliver it has failed to consistently deliver it. We always run out of joy. Um, what we see in this passage, as this passage unfolds, is that through the eyes of Jesus, uh, this wedding and the running out of wine carried much more weight and significance than the day at the hand, at day at hand. You see, the, the disaster of the party serves as a powerful metaphor. If you're following along with it, it's a powerful metaphor for the very reason that Jesus had come. You ever thought about that? That, that he had come, you know, God in the form of man, so that, that because the joy, which the wine represents, ha, has run dry, has run out. And every one of us uh, severely longs for the kind of satisfaction, kind, kind of joy that doesn't ever run dry. And yet when we look to an exciting day at, at a new church or a start of college or getting married or first promotion at work, we think, man, this is it. I'm so, man, I'm so full of joy right now. This must be the thing I've been looking for all my life. This is what's going to bring me joy. But then it just, you know, as your arms are clasped around it, the joy seems to just escape. As you hold on to it, the joy begins to fade. And when that happens, we can respond of one of three ways, kind of common ways. The first is that we will blame the thing itself. You ever done that? So like, I thought this was going to bring me joy, but now it's not. And so now I need a new whatever. I need a new thing, or I need a new job, or I need a new girlfriend, or I need a new church, or whatever it might be. Think that it's the thing that's failed you. And so if I can find another thing, then I can find more joy. Or we respond by blaming ourselves. We think it's, it's you're, like, I failed myself. If I had been a better employee, then I would have gotten the job, and that would have gotten me the joy that I needed, but I wasn't as good as I needed to be. Or if I had been a better boyfriend, then I could have gotten the girl, and the girl would have brought me the joy, but I felt myself. And you blame yourself. You think, you know, so you left try, try harder or just be depressed. That's another way that we respond oftentimes when the joy runs out. Or the third common way is that we will, uh, we will uh, blame the idea itself. We'll just say, hey, this whole idea that there's something that can bring me consistent joy is just a lie. And I'm just going to give up any hope that there'll be anything that truly will satisfy me. We'll grow, we grow cynical. Those are the common ways that we respond, right? You either blame the thing, you blame yourself, or you blame the whole idea in general. But in Christianity, friends, we're taught something different. We're taught to respond different. See, what we're taught to blame is our separation with God. So we're, we're taught to say that the reason the joy always runs out is because we were made for a relationship with the one who created us and the one we were created for. And because we don't have that, the joy runs dry. And yet here Jesus is, shows up at this wedding feast. 
They've run out of wine, and Jesus is, is there to turn the water into wine, to say, I've come to bring the joy that you're missing. I'm the provider of joy. You need me to find the joy that you've always longed for. In verse 8, we're told that there is a master of ceremonies, right? It was his job to make the party great. But when Jesus turns the water into wine, he saves the day. And this is Jesus' way of saying, now, I'm the true master of ceremonies. I'm the true Lord of the feast. I'm, I'm the one who's come to bring festival joy, the joy, the wine that will, will never run dry. And that's why this is referred to in verse 11 as his first of his signs. Did you catch that? Look again at verse 11. It says, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. Like this was not merely referred to as a miracle, right? But, but a sign, a sign being a signifier of something else. A symbol or a signifier of something else. So here we see Jesus doing something that like reveals his glory that says to people, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. Now it's interesting to note that this was the first of his signs. This was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? So this is Jesus kind of going public for the first time. And you think of all the things for Jesus to go public to say, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. Isn't it interesting that he chose turning water to wine to keep a a party going? (laughs) Isn't that an interesting choice? That his first miraculous sign that would be the signifier, quintessential signifier of all that he is, would be to bring a lot of wine to a party? Why would he do that? Why would that be his first sign? If you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't know. That's a good question. Then let me just say, kind of bluntly, but if you're left scratching your head there, it could be a sign that you don't fully understand what Jesus was all about, what Jesus came to do. So the reason, friends, this was Jesus' first sign was because this revealed what he had come to do. That he had come to bring joy, unending joy. Joy that never runs out. This whole picture takes on even more meaning when you, under, when you know or are familiar with the entire story of the Bible. That the, the, the biblical story ends with a wedding, doesn't it? With a wedding feast. In Revelation 19, you have the wedding feast of the Lamb. The, the, wed, the wedding, the bringing together of God and his people into a forever union. That that's how the that's how the story of the Bible ends, and the reason that the Bible ends with that story is because God's very clear, even all through the Old Testament, that the type of relationship that God wants with His people is not a relationship just re- representative of a king to servants, but a relationship far more intimate, a relationship of a husband to a wife, to a groom, to a bride. The significance of this is that that's, it's Jesus alone that can make that day happen. See, at the end of time, there's going to be a wedding and a wedding feast to end off feasts, celebrating the intimate and permanent union between God and his people. And that's what Jesus, friends, that's why he came to accomplish. That's why this is his first sign. He came to provide the way for us to enter into the one relationship that will bring us joy forever and ever. You see, it's the most rapturous love of a wedded couple on earth. It's just a dismal hint of the joy that we will find in him. That Jesus has come so it would be possible for us to experience the incredible joy 
that comes from being passionately loved by someone who understands and knows you fully and yet still fully accepts you and loves you. Have you ever experienced even a hint of that? I mean, it's just so good. When you find yourself to be completely vulnerable with someone, like be vulnerable with Krista, and she doesn't run away, but she loves me still, but that God knows every single thing about you and loves you still. What joy to be found there. It's the incredible joy. Jesus came to bring the incredible joy of of being loved by the one you admire and respect more than anyone else and you know is better than you ever, ever deserve, and yet they love you even more than you love them. Have you ever been in that kind of relationship? Again, that's the kind of relationship I think I'm in with Krista. She's way better than I ever, ever deserve, and yet she is crazy about me. Oh my goodness, it's so fun. It's so joyous to have that, though, with God, who absolutely is far better than any of us deserve, is the person we respect and admire more than any of us, and yet he loves us even more than we love him. That's the kind of relationship Jesus came to to enable us to enter into, that he came willing to do whatever it would take to be able to pay the price for us to be able to enter into that relationship with him, where he would bind himself to us and we would be bound to him forever and ever, and therefore find the joy that we've all longed for that we have all been lacking. Friends, that's why Jesus came. But that joy that Jesus came to bring, it came at an incredible cost himself, didn't it? And I just want us to take a minute and reflect on that before we wrap up this morning. Again, just go back to the passage. Because in the conversation between Jesus and his mom, like Mary tells Jesus that they're out of wine, and he says, uh, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which is like a really cold way to talk to his mom, right? You're like, Jesus, that's, I, didn't, I didn't think you would talk to your mom that way, right? But it makes you ask, like, what, was, what was weighing heavily on him? Like, what, what was going on in his mind when he said that? And what's telling is that when he uses the phrase, my hour is not yet come, that like clues us in that what his mind was on. For in the book of John, when Jesus refers to his hour, uh, which he does often, John 2, John 8, John 12, 13, 17, each time he's referring to his hour, he's referring to this hour on the cross. So, so what Jesus is thinking about at this moment is that he's thinking about his death. And when, Je- when Jesus' mom, Mary, comes up to him and says, hey, you know, have you noticed they've, they've run out of wine? That, again, is tied to the sign of what he's there to do, who he is and what he's all about. And he's thinking, see, I've come to make sure the wine never runs out. I've come to bring joy unending. But he knows that in order to turn the shame into joy, it would cost him his life. So you think again, the, the picture, the symbol of, the, of this wedding feast, the, the couple whose feast it was had run out of the wine, and that was incredible social disaster, incredible shame. And that Jesus is going to turn water into wine to save them, to turn their shame into joy. But for us, guys, our shame, our sin, he would have to do a far bigger miracle. Uh, dying and rising again to turn our shame into joy, to enter so that we could enter into an unending relationship with the God that we were created by and created for.
You see, uh, Jesus knows that in order for us to be able to drink his cup of festival joy that he had come to bring, it would require him drinking the cup that we deserve to drink, the cup of God's wrath. And that's what he was thinking about at this moment. His mom comes and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And he basically responds with, hey, what does that have to do with me? I am not ready to die yet. My hour has not come. But then Jesus has the servants go and fill up what? The purification jars, right? With water. And that's where he turns the water into wine. And again, think of the symbolism here. That these purification jars were there because of the Old Testament rituals of, of all of the different courses of things that you had to do to cleanse yourself in order to be able to stand before God who's perfect and holy. It was a part of the very beginning part of the sacrificial system. And so Jesus has him, has them fill up those jars with water. And it's there that he turns the water into wine. And it's a picture of us, friends, It's a picture for us to see what it would take for him to cover our shame and to cover our guilt. Because we're all sinners. For us to recognize the incredible joy of the cross, we have to first look at the hard truth that we all needed Jesus to die for us. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we all carry with us shame and guilt. But Jesus, in his great love for us, came to us and he cleansed us through his death and through his resurrection, paying for our sins, washing away our unrighteousness so that we could be made right with him and being made right in him, receiving his righteousness. We're ushered into a relationship with God himself where the joy we've all been looking for is found. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Encountering Jesus. He said, Jesus sat in the midst of all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow of the cross, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit in the midst of all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy of being forever united with him. And friends, he did this, Jesus did this, because uh, when he went to the cross to pay for our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, he did it so we could have unending joy. He is the one, the only one that supplies a joy that never runs out. He paid the great price, the substitutionary sacrifice, not just to free you from guilt, but so you can also fall into his arms at the end of the ages, knowing you're his forever and ever. Friends, he's the one that is the provider of our joy. Look what he did. Look at the cost that he paid that we could have it. His joy. He's the one where joy is found. Today, friends, we start a new chapter as a church. It's so, it's so exciting. In fact, on your, on your chairs, we gave you a pen. Everyone's got a, a, a pen to just kind of signify, kind of commemorate this morning. The fact that we're starting a new chapter together, we want you to take those home. They won't be there every, every week. So just this week, you got a pen. And we want you to take it home just to remind you that like today, God started a new chapter in the life of our church. He's writing a great story. And you're a part of that story. You're a part of it. 
And we, friends, we don't know, we don't know everything that this next chapter is going to entail. We didn't see this coming. <laughs> so we were going to cause us to think that we would know what's next. But we do know what the story is going to be about. See, the story is going to continue to be about what it's been about. It's a story of people who have found the joy they've always been looking for in the person of Jesus Christ. The story is about people who found the joy in Jesus and then are so compelled to turn and tell others about him so they can have his joy too. That's what this story is about. And it's going to be a great story. We're going to be better together. And we've got a great story to tell. Friends, let's lean into it. Let's lean in together. Let's be, let's pursue each other, even if it's awkward at times. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and the one who has brought us the joy that we and all of our friends long for. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. God, it is through him that we can be united to you, that we uh, can be ushered into a relationship that, that will satisfy us completely, where the, where the joy will never run dry. Lord, to know that you love us, even though you know everything about us, to know what you would do to be able to be with us, to, to Father, to know that you willingly sent your son to die and that he willingly volunteered to come, that we could be your sons and your daughters, that we as your church could be your bride, and we could be forever united with you. You are amazing. You, God, we declare, are the source of our joy. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on our behalf, that we could be united to you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.